Good morning. My name is May and it's great to be with you. And it's great for you to be with me because this is the first time I'm recording from my new flat, so welcome. I want to start today by telling a little story um, about a time when I really needed to encourage a friend. So I'd coerced her into writing and performing a show with me for the Fringe Festival. I was a seasoned Fringe veteran and she was a complete newbie. And to kind of make matters worse, we only gave ourselves one day in person to learn all our lines and rehearse the show together. So we were kind of flying by the seat of our pants. And I did realize at one point, only a few hours before the show, just how nervous she was. And that was my moment, my opportunity to take her under my wing, to tell her that she's gonna be amazing, that there'll be hordes of people in the basement of the pub that our free friend show was in, you know, cheering her name and that they would throw cash at her and by the end of the week, she'd see her name in lights. Instead, I think I said something like, imagine them naked, which to be honest, has never particularly helped me when performing. But the reason I couldn't offer her any better encouragement than that is because in all honesty, both of us could have messed it up and we didn't know what was coming. Fortunately, the five nights did go very well. Today's message is one of encouragement. And it's pretty simple. God keeps his promises. You can hope in Jesus. In the midst of these uncertain times, you are encouraged to hold on to the hope of Jesus because his promises are good. And unlike the weak encouragement I offered my friend, there's an unshakable basis to God's encouragement. Today's passage isn't just nice statements pulled out of thin air. There's an argument behind it, a logic we can rationalize. And we're gonna spend some time looking at that today. So let's get straight into it. Hebrews 6 verses 13 to 20. You can read in your Bibles if you have it or it will come up on the screen. Verse 13, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So 
Last week, we heard from Hannah the verses right before this with that message from the writer to keep your head up, stay committed. It's important to remember that at the time this was written, the church was facing opposition, persecution, and Jewish Christians were at a crisis point. Do they turn back to Judaism, which is much easier? Or do they stick with following Jesus? And this is why the writer writes in a combination of exhortation and exposition, i.e. he has his main argument, but also these warnings and encouragements interspersed throughout. For a very different reason today, we find ourselves at a surprisingly similar crisis point. You could turn off your screens, you could pause this talk, and then not come back to church for a month. And it would be hard for anyone to know that would be that. And so the combination of warnings and encouragements is as relevant to us now as it was then. And I believe that this passage, one of the greatest encouragements in Hebrews, was meant for us today. It was purposed to, to speak to you, whatever you're going through just now. And how does the passage do that? How does it encourage us? By reminding and revealing to us God's character, his generosity, his graciousness, his dependability. This section of Hebrews is titled The Certainty of God's Promise in the NIV translation. We are being presented with a case for trusting in God's word. Do you trust in God's word? This is crucial to the endurance of our faith, one of the key themes of Hebrews as a whole. So let's walk through the logic, the argument that the writer is presenting to us here. In verses 13 to 15, the writer is launching into his evidence for the encouragement. So let's look at verse 13 to 15. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. In other words, he's telling us that Abraham experienced the certainty of God's promise. So let's look into this a little bit. Why is the writer telling us this? The first reason, quite simply, is that it was foundational for the people at the time who were hearing this letter, this book of Hebrews, either being read to them or preached to them. It was foundational that God made a promise to Abraham. Hebrews gives us a brief summary of it. Some of you will know the story much better than that. For those of you who don't, I'll give you a whistle-stop tour of Abraham's life. So many centuries before Jesus came to earth, God called Abraham into a new land and made a promise to him that his barren wife, Sarah, would have a son and many, many descendants through that son. When it didn't happen quickly, Abraham got Hagar, Sarah's servant, pregnant, and she had a son called Ishmael, who God blessed, but that wasn't the son he was talking about. Much later, Abraham and Sarah had a son, Isaac. 
And when Abraham was tested to see whether he still believed that God would keep his promise through Isaac, Abraham showed he was prepared to sacrifice his son because he was so sure of the promise that God had made that he thought, well, God will bring Isaac back to life. And then God made that promise that has its ultimate combination in Jesus that we read in Hebrews. This covenant, this promise, marked out the beginnings of the promise between God and the Israelites for centuries. And that's why it was a place of common knowledge that the writer was starting from. God made a promise to Abraham. The second point is that God kept his promises to Abraham even after he stumbled. After the whole Ishmael fiasco, God reiterates the same promise to Abraham um, in Genesis 17, asking Abraham to walk in faith and be blameless. But Abraham makes mistakes. A couple of chapters later, we read him lying to a king about his wife, once again, taking a situation into his own hands. But nevertheless, at the beginning of Genesis 21, a couple chapters later again, we read, Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Throughout the Bible, there is a constant duality of how we are called to live as believers and what God does anyway out of his graciousness and generosity. That's something we can even see in the last few weeks of Hebrews. And ultimately, this duality is something to embrace because it reveals to us God's supremely good character. God was gracious and he kept his promises to Abraham even after Abraham stumbled. The third point is that God delivered on his promises after Abraham waited patiently. There was a significant time delay for Abraham between the promise and the fulfillment of the promise in Isaac being born because Abraham was 75 when God first made that promise, but 100 when Isaac was born, which really was a miracle. And for the most part in that time, Abraham did walk faithfully. He truly believed God, even though the promises must have seemed so unlikely. But we also know that in between then, as we've said, Abraham messed up. He tried to take matters into his own hands. There is a time for proactivity. I'm not advocating that we never do anything ourselves, but there is also a time for waiting. And we're not very good at that, are we? Sometimes I wonder whether it would be better or worse if God told me, oh, this is definitely going to happen, but you have to wait 25 years. Maybe I'm impatient, but our timing is not God's timing and our patience honors the God who delivers at the right time. Our patience honors the God who delivers at the right time. So it's significant that God delivered on his promises after Abraham waited patiently. So the life of Abraham is evidence of God's sure promises but what's the significance of it? What does it mean for us? Let's look at verses 16 to 18. 
People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. So for those of us who take hold of the hope of God, in other words, if you believe in Jesus, then it is true not only that God makes a promise to Abraham, but also that he makes a promise to us. Likewise, God kept his promises to Abraham even after he stumbled, and so he will do the same for us. And finally, God delivered on his promises after Abraham waited patiently, and this will be true for us as we wait patiently. Maybe I'm skipping ahead to the conclusion here. It's hard not to when it's really good. (laughs) I want to spend a little bit of time just exploring the logic of that and how we get to that great conclusion. Because it's one thing to be told that or to be told you're completely forgiven or you have amazing grace. But all too often, I know I found myself skipping over really rich arguments that lead up to conclusions just because they're a little bit more complicated. Anyone else? So let's look at the verses. First, in verse 16, the writer uses a legal example, the way oaths were used in court. Now, I looked up a bit about the use of oaths at the time, but I'm no expert. And I had to also check with a lawyer to understand, not that I called a lawyer, I just was with one, um, to understand really how our use and knowledge of oaths has changed between the ancient Mediterranean world and now. Back then, when an oath was sworn in court to confirm that a testimony was true, there was then no room for anyone to legally dispute that. Nowadays, we think of an oath as putting your hand on a Bible in court, but we also recognize that even once you've sworn that, you could still be found to be lying in court. So when the first says that an oath puts an end to all argument, it's not like what we might think of today, where that might not be fully satisfying. A legal oath was a legitimate claim to truth. This is why George Guthrie says in his commentary on the verse that if truthfulness can be confirmed in such a manner in human courts of law, it is even more assured when God himself swears an oath. God doesn't have to swear. God doesn't have to swear. His word is true. So here's the million dollar question. Why does he? In verse 18, we learn that he does this for no other reason than our great encouragement. Imagine for a moment, a world leader who primarily wants us, you, to feel encouraged. Many of us read warnings in the Bible, maybe even the one we heard last week, although Hannah illuminated that helpfully for us. But many of us will read warnings and go, oh, but actually, warnings are what we expect from a state leader, aren't they? Wear a mask or there will be a fine. Buy a TV license or we'll hunt you down. But encouragement? Imagine Boris Johnson doing a daily briefing today where he was like, you know what? 
I want to bless you all and encourage you all individually. It would be a little bit strange. And it's funny, isn't it? Because that phrasing does make a difference. If he says, I promise to you, and also I swear to God that I'm going to encourage you, that I'm going to bless you. You might think that's just because many people find it hard to trust when the government makes promises in this political climate. But actually, because of our weaknesses as humans, many of us might not want to admit that at times we find it hard to trust the promises of God, maybe particularly in the face of suffering. I remember a few years ago, um, I was worshipping with a group of friends and um, I was having a conversation with one afterwards um, as we'd just been singing um, that, that lyric, that bridge that's like, you're never gonna let me down. And she was finding that a really hard line because she did feel let down. She had a friend who was sick with cancer. But not being let down isn't about never grieving, never facing challenges. At some point we all face challenges like that and it's hard. In verse 19, we read about how this hope of God is described as an anchor. And I love what Tom Wright says in his commentary on this. We are not promised that there won't be any storms. Indeed, the provision of a secure anchor implies that there will be. What we are promised is that we will be kept safe. If you're in that storm right now, by the way, if, if you're facing that challenge right now, we want to pray for you. There's prayer at the end. Like Zach said a couple of weeks ago, if we focus on earthly uncertainty more than we focus on God's certainty, unbelief creeps in so easily. But God knows this. God knows this. And so he knew that we'd need more than just a little bit of encouraging more than even just that first promise. So he doesn't just promise, he also swears by himself, by his own perfection and unchanging nature. So the logic that the writer is presenting is, God's done it before and because he is unchanging, he will do it again. This is why we can be sure that because God kept his promises, he will keep his promises. In other words, he's utterly dependable. Do you live in the light of that truth? Do you know God as dependable? So far in this passage, the writer has walked us through his argument using God's promises to Abraham and God's immutability, his unchanging nature, to demonstrate that his promises still stand for us. And this is to be a great, not just a little bit, but a great encouragement to us which is pretty amazing in itself. And we haven't even got to the punchline. In verses 19 to 20, he pretty much unlocks the whole secret to this life of endurance. 19, verse 19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become our high priest forever 
in the order of Melchizedek. The message is this. We have said that because God kept his promises, he will keep his promises now. Don't let that just be head knowledge. Let that hope be the anchor of your soul, the most secure truth that all the other stuff in your life is based upon. The passage talks about the inner sanctuary, i.e. the holiest place in the Jewish temple where the presence of God dwelt, where Jesus entered for us to remove that barrier, that curtain between us and the presence of God. Notice the tenses here. Hope enters where Jesus has entered. Hope follows where Jesus goes first. Hope goes where Jesus goes. In 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20, it says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. You may know that verse is, All your promises are yes and amen. God's promises are yes in Christ. So let this anchor you. Other people's approval can't be your anchor that will slip out of the sand as soon as no one's looking. Your job or your financial security cannot be your anchor. Our economic climate makes that clearer than ever. Your political party or ideology cannot be your anchor because you can't trust that people will make the right choices or that promises will be kept. But Jesus is the yes to the promises of God. Are we going to say amen? As I finish and we come into a time where we can respond to this, I I feel like there are two invitations here. There's an invitation, firstly, to take hold of the hope of God in the first instance. Maybe you are watching this, but you don't know God right now, or maybe you just haven't felt that hope in a long time. You're going through a storm, you're feeling the effects of coronavirus. Well, remember, anchors are given because storms are guaranteed. Hope is that anchor because God keeps his promises. So we want to pray for you to know that encouragement on offer today. But this also isn't a one-time action. So the second invitation is for those of you that know this hope. There's a call to endurance which can be practiced through things like spiritual disciplines. Because holding on to hope is active, not passive. So maybe you want to take this time to recommit yourself to pursuing God in your daily life. I felt that a word that might be relevant for some of us today is that when you're out at sea, you don't use an anchor when you go, but when you stop. In other words, you might be someone who's constantly doing, but when you slow down and pause and reflect, what are the thoughts catching up to you? Is the hope of Jesus grounding you and sustaining you. God is inviting you to choose to slow down and be with him. Our dependable, unchanging, gracious God is a safe place for you to stop and rest.
So I'm just going to pray a short prayer. And then we'll have some time to reflect on that. So Lord, I just pray that Holy Spirit, you would be prompting in everyone who's joining in with us just now, what their response to this is, what your invitation to them is from your word today. We thank you for this great encouragement, Lord, that for us, you you promised and you made an oath so that we would know such a deep, such a good hope. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.